Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Um, We're in the beginning of a new year, and it has been a habit of mine for many, many years to usually pause at least one week to reflect on what the church ought to be uh, or ought to keep in mind as we enter into a new year. What, What do we need to do better at? Often this takes the form of reminding, and that's actually, if you didn't know, one of the most common tasks a pastor does for his church is to remind them. Very seldom is there anything new. In fact, I think that one of the biggest problems within many churches is that they're always trying to make things new and fresh. The reality is is that you have this much and only this much that God has given us And that is what we are responsible for, and that's what we're to be doing. And instead of being content with that, we're always looking for something new, a different way, a different idea. And the reality is that the Word of God is sufficient, and it is what we need. The Apostle Peter himself says in 2 Peter, in his other book, these words. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, meaning his body, to stir you up by by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter is recognizing, because God has actually told him, that his life is coming to an end. So what does he want to do all the more is to remind, to remind. And and I find it all the more important to remind you uh, as I press on myself as pastor and understand that we quickly forget. Too often, in fact, what we do is we forget what we ought to remember and we end up remembering what we ought to forget. We forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. In fact, the Apostle Peter, or Paul talked about it. In fact, it was part of our Lord's Supper. It was a whole scripture that was being read by Jay, that he, Paul, had been religious in every possible way in the eyes and standards of mankind. He understood, nonetheless, that his efforts, his bloodline, his righteousness had nothing to do with his salvation. They could not save him. And so instead, he says, forgetting what lies behind me, meaning forgetting all of that past that I used to cling to and reaching forward to what lies ahead. If you think about much of our anxiety and our foolish decisions lie in forgetting who Jesus is, forgetting what Jesus has accomplished, forgetting what is to be our hope. 
And so when we forget, then we begin to invest massive amounts of time and energy for things that God says are actually passing away. And we forget to instead invest in those things which are eternal. In forgetting, we become bitter because we think God somehow has failed us. When we ought to remember that if God has, the Father has given us his son, how shall he not give us what? All other things. And yet we forget it, don't we? And we become fretful and filled with anxiety and anger and all of the other things instead of remembering what God has done. In forgetting, we fail to ask our Heavenly Father for things when we ought to remember that he bids us to come and to ask. Ask and you shall receive. We know this, and yet we don't. Over and over again, I, I find myself as pastor talking to somebody, and they're, they're telling me about their thoughts, and they don't know what to do, and here's this and that. And that's good. That's normal and proper. But here's what is interesting is how often I look at them and say, have you prayed about that? And, and the look on their face tells me. And, and that's okay. That's what I have to do is to remind them. And then I have, I have the privilege of saying, you need to pray. Just ask the Lord. He knows what you need. He knows what your heart's desire. There's nothing magical here. Just lay that before the Lord. Father, I I don't know what I ought to do. I'm struggling with where to go with regard to my job, with regard to my family, with regard to my schooling, whatever it might be. I'm asking you to just give me wisdom. Give me a clarity of thought, Father. Simple as that. Just lay it before the Lord. He says, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. We forget these things. And so today I want to remind all of us something that's very easily forgotten. And that is that this world is not our home, nor our hope. This world is not our home or our hope. And yet though we do not find our hope here and now, nevertheless, you and I live here and now. And so what then do we do? And behind all of that is the heartbeat of this church. Our name is Missio Dei Fellowship, and people love to tease us about it, and even we at times, I'll hear people almost apologizing for the name. But that there's a reason for this name. We gather together. That's the fellowship part of the name. We gather together in the name of Christ. We come together for that common purpose, to be reminded of our common faith, to share in the common cup and the common bread, to sing the songs together. All of that we gather together in that fellowship. But it's all for the purpose or learning of of learning to be faithful to the mission of God, which is Missio Dei. We are seeking to be faithful to what his mission is and what he is doing. And I can tell you this, if we lose sight of why God saved us and why we have another day to breathe, then you and I may accomplish a million things in our life, and yet we will accomplish nothing. It's one of the strange things about the life of the Christian is that when, you're, when your life is bound up in defining things in accordance to the way this world works, but you're a believer, then in the end, all you end up with is what uh, Paul would call wood, hay, and stubble, and it just burns away. It becomes nothing. The amount of energy and money and time and and tears and and emotion and dreams that gets invested in the things that 
ultimately don't matter. And we lose sight of what we ought to remember. The mission of God. Why has God left us here? Why do we live? Why do you have your home and your life and your funds and, and your time? All of the things that are yours. Why has God gifted them to you? The more you travel, if you ever do traveling around this uh, world, the more you see that you have been richly blessed in so many different ways. Why has he done that? Why you? Why, why are you not the one that's living on the street in Calcutta? The son or daughter of a prostitute already with the AIDS in your body, wasting you away. Why not you? Why, why were, were, was, how did that work? Why are you not in some dump? pawing through the garbage of the society just to live because that's how you were born? What is it that is going on? What, what has God been doing in your life for his purposes? That's what I want to remind you today. And we find, well, there's many places we could do, but the passage I chose was 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in a second, I'll explain why this is such a helpful passage. Read along with me. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a very interesting section of the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, Verse 11 basically is uh, summarizing chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. So this is a hinge passage. This, This is a place where things begin to turn. So verse 11 is summarizing what he's already said, and verse 12 is summarizing the rest of the book. I want you to notice some things by way of introduction uh, in the tone of Peter's appeal, because he says, beloved, I urge you. Now, I told you, and I have said this many times, that that phrase, beloved, it's a, a phrase that I began to use, and you guys are very used to me now calling you beloved, but it was not always that way. It was a battle for me. There were times where I, as a younger pastor, was growing embittered and frustrated, and, and then that leading to anger and, and fighting that in my own heart, um, and all the while still trying to labor as a pastor, and, and I'm learning as I go, all of those challenges. And I began to notice how often the Scripture would refer to the brothers and sisters as beloved. And so I, I decided at that moment that I would insert that into my vocabulary as much as I could, and it was simply a reminder for me who you were, who you were, that you are the beloved. You're not just beloved by me. In fact, at that time, at time some people were not, but yet you are beloved by the Father. He has laid his love upon you. He has redeemed you. He has poured his grace upon you. He has brought you from death into life, right? All of those wonderful things, and that makes you the beloved. And in doing that, by saying that, it began to warm my heart in ways that I had not had. This is what Peter is saying to these people. Beloved, I I urge you, deep affection for these people. He loves them. 
This is a pastor looking at his people, and he's talking to them as precious souls, and he has their best interests in mind. Have you ever done that with your, your son or daughter, where you call them and just, hey, buddy, listen to me. Sweetheart, listen to me. Because you're burdened with that. He's not going to give some random thoughts to them, and he knows that these instructions are how they can practically live out their times here on earth to God's glory and their joy. In fact, the urge, the word urge is something I like. It's something to call alongside, to be called alongside someone. It's not a harsh one. It's not an angry command. He's not barking it out. Rather, it is an entreaty of someone who is close to you, a close friend who runs up beside you to help you see a better way. Uh, I, I was an athlete in my younger days, and, and you would see that with a good coach. Maybe in your days as an athlete, you had that, where you, you did something, and maybe you, you, you were just a little off, and your coach would run up to you, and he'd be filled with earnestness. He's not mad, and he, but he grabs you, and he's like, come on, let's go. You've got to push it or something. And, and you, you feel energized. You're like, okay, okay, let's do this, and, and off you go. That's what Peter is trying. I'm urging you. I'm coming alongside you. You're my beloved. I, I, I have an affection for you as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been purchased by his blood. I want you to get this. There's a relationship. He sees them and knows them for what they are. He's about ready to die. And he understands that they're strangers and aliens to this world. And so is he. And he spent a lot of time discussing why they are strangers already. In chapter 1, he gets into all of that. Due to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, now he is prepared to talk about them acting like strangers. So he's explained to them, this is how you became a stranger. Now let me tell you what it looks like to walk like a stranger to this world. So let me take a little bit of time here uh, to talk about how and why they're aliens and strangers. Why you, if you are a Christian in this room, why you are an alien and a stranger. Because it's all due to Jesus Christ. If you don't understand how to become an alien and stranger of this world, or why it, it is true, then everything else has been wasted. It's just simply what the Bible calls the gospel. The fact is that we, as people born in sin, sin, anything that is contrary to the will of God or his character, the greatest of that sin is simply a rejection of God, either overtly or casually and passively by not caring. The Bible would call that being ungodly. We don't give thought of God. We don't give thanks to God. We don't acknowledge him as God. We make this God, uh, the God of the Scripture, the one true God, into our own image, our own making. We accept what we like and we reject what we don't like. All of this is just what the Bible would call sin. And with it comes the judgment by our Creator. He who made us and sustains us and, and gives us all things. We live and breathe by His hand, His kindness. He calls us then to be faithful to Him, but we're not. Why? Because our heart is broken. Our heart is sinful. And as sinful people, we then commit sin. 
And that sin will show itself in a multitude of ways, and we'll actually see it within the scriptures soon uh, in this message. So I won't go that into that right now. But the reality is that because of that, the Bible describes us as being separated from God. Objects of his wrath. That wrath is, is his judicial wrath, that you have broken that which is holy and right, his law, his way. And you may say in your mind, well, I don't really care. Who is he? Well, he's the one that made you. That's who he is. And he's the one that sets the rules in place. And what you're seeing in our own whole nation right now is a wholesale thrusting away of everything that we might consider right and good, where we are brazenly saying we don't care. Well, this is on an individual basis where you come under his wrath. And so we are born in this state, we live in this state, and we're called to be righteous before God. Well, we can't be righteous before God. There's nothing in us to be righteous. We have our own goodness, but it's always tainted by the sin. And so so everything always falls flat. And yet Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, was came to us. He is God in flesh. This is the whole thing of Christmas, right? They took on flesh, God with us, that he might become our sin. He would take our sin upon him, and he would bear it. He would be our substitute. And in substituting himself in our place, he then bears our wrath. This is why we are happy. This is why we talk about being redeemed. We've been purchased out of that enslavement to sin. God has done all of this for us. And through the Spirit, he, he grants us the ability to see this and come under conviction of it and then believe it. Believe that Christ is my sin bearer. Christ is my substitute. Christ is my life. Christ is my hope. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. What we'll worship and rejoice in on Easter. Why? Because sin has its power in death. And so Christ died. But he rose again, conquering even death. So he then says, all who have faith in me have life in me now. They have in me forgiveness. In fact, they now share in all that is mine. They become, the Bible calls us, joint heirs, right, with Jesus. All of that is coming to bear. Now, with that, though, when one believes that, when you say, I do believe that, that is my hope, and you, it settles in your heart where you're like, yes, I believe that, something happens. You become an alien and a stranger to this age because you now belong to a different age and a different realm and a different Lord, but you still live in this age. And so what I want to do with all of that in mind is to spend our time looking at just two aspects of living as a stranger in this age. The first thing he says in the second part of verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, and now we get to the core, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now he says in verses 11 and 12, the first part, verse 12, that we're to be a holy people, a holy people. Now in the English, your passage may appear to give two separate things, that we're to abstain and we're to keep our, our, our behavior excellent. And so we think there's two different things going on there. Actually, there's only one point. The, the verb, I mean, it's actually an infinitive, but 
Um, it, it's the, it's to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's the point. That's what he wants you to get in this section. So understand this, beloved, because what this means is that for you to ever have a practical righteousness before mankind, before you can ever actually properly live before an unbelieving world, you have to have personal holiness. That's what his concern is. Remember, up to this point, he's been describing what it looks like to have and become strangers and aliens to this world. Now he's beginning to get into the meat of it. Okay, if that's true, what's that look like? And he goes right at your holiness, your godliness. But to have that holiness, again, you have to have been first cleansed by the gospel, by trusting in Jesus. So what Peter's doing is he's calling them to have this inner discipline for their lives. He reminds them that they're aliens and strangers. That means something. It's not just a phrase. It's not something that you just like, okay, whatever. No, it means something to him. To be an alien is, is a person who lives in a foreign country where they don't have the rights of the citizens. Strangers, that, that term speaks of living alongside other people with whom you do not belong. And you, you're always feeling a little off because these are not your people. And by, he's emphasizing by putting them together that truly you and I have been, become foreigners in this world that we live in. It's a Christ-rejecting world, and we don't belong here. And therefore, we cannot be living out and taking part in the customs of this world, which are not Christ-honoring. We have, are to abstain. And yet at the same time, now get this, don't, don't miss this part, we're to also be living in such a way that we conduct ourselves with honor and generosity and kindness toward that unbelieving world. So we're to not be partaking of the things of this world, and yet we're to show kindness and love and generosity toward this world. Now that is a challenge. In fact, that creates an incredible tension for us. How many times have we seen men and women who we watch them and they're filled with harshness, strident, complaining, negative, whining, a whole host of other things that are unpleasant, all the while claiming Christ. Their neighbors have little good to say about them. The press has no reason to consider them as unique, for they're really nothing more than the bunch of troublemakers. The reality is that the Christian should be a great boss and an excellent employee. They should be a faithful student and an excellent instructor. But, but Peter is arguing that just because we're strangers to this world does not mean that we fight against it. So he says, you're, you are strangers and aliens, but now what is he saying you're to do? To abstain. Which implies that though you're already a stranger and alien to this age, you're not that good at abstaining. So you need to be reminded. You need to be told, again, let's take stock of our lives, which is why I chose this for us this year at the beginning of it. The call is to abstain. 
Literally, that means to hold yourself off from something or to, from away from something. I like it this way. It's that you're to be distant from it. Now, that is completely opposite, is it not, of how most of the time people tend to live as Christians. Too often, what we find with Christians is that we try to get as close as we can without going over the line, whatever that line is, right? We're looking at, okay, so so I can drink. Yes, you can drink, but not get drunk. Yeah, so what's drunk? Well, at that point, we're already lost, right? We're now playing the game. We're playing the game of how many drinks before, I mean, what's tipsy versus what's drunk? What's this, what versus that? What's this versus that? And, and we're playing it. And what we're trying to really do is say, we're going to try to get as close as we can. And he's like, you've already missed the point. You're to be distant from these things. You're just to be distant from them. Abstain from these things. He does it in a, a way, it's, it's the, this infinitive, it's in the present middle Present tense, middle voice. Present tense simply means it's the, the consistent, constant need to be abstaining. If you are talking about what you did last year, how you abstained last year and, and changed some things, you're still talking about that, then you probably need this sermon to think about where then do I stand now? What are the ways in which this world and my own sinful flesh has moved us? Okay, I got away over here, but I've now moved over here. And oh, okay, we need to pull back again. And this is something you do on a consistent basis if you're wise, is this constant reflection of where you're at. The middle voice, though, makes it clear that it's your responsibility, my responsibility. We do not wait until God lays it on our hearts. Have you ever heard that? You know, I'm just praying that God will lay it on his heart. No, you just need to tell him, look, here's what the scripture is, and he is, or she is to obey it. We're not waiting for God to convict us. When you say, I don't feel conviction, so I won't, means nothing. It's an absolutely empty statement. If you are saying, well, I'm waiting for God to bring me under conviction and then I'll move. No, no. The question is never, have I felt convicted? That makes it all about you, right? And, and we're wonderful at not feeling conviction. The question is, what does the scripture say? What has God revealed as a Christian we ought to do or not do? What should we abstain or be distant from? And then go do it. And you're like, yeah, but I don't feel like it. I don't care if you don't feel like it. It is what you are to do. We do it because the Bible calls us to do it, and if the Bible calls us to do it, then the Scripture calls, I mean, then God does. In fact, he says in 2 Peter 1.3 that God's already granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness, so get over it. He, he describes these things as fleshly lusts. The word lust is actually a very neutral word, though it's not in our thinking oftentimes. The word lust simply means to have this incredibly strong desire for something. The way he deals with that then is by adding fleshly to it. Now he is showing us what kind of desires need to be held away. The things where they conform themselves to the flesh. The, the flesh 
again, I don't have time to develop. This would be a whole sermon or two on its own. The idea of the flesh is simply that part that is still resident of sin in our lives, even though we've been saved. We're now dead to the old man, Adam, and and sin. We're dead because we've died with Christ. Romans 6 makes that very clear. And yet, we still have this hangover. My, my professor always described it as a hangover of sin, the sin hangover. And that's what you and I all struggle with as Christians, is that there's this aspect that still clings to the world and the ways of the world. No longer is it under its power and authority. So now we can resist. But we have not yet been saved from that presence of the sin. And we battle with that or we don't. So what are the fleshly lusts? Well, uh, turn to Galatians 5, but while you do, just hear uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. What is that? That you abstain, there's that word again, from sexual immorality. So what is the will of God? What are the fleshly lusts? Well, one of them will just simply be sexual immorality. And in our day and age right now is, uh, in America, that's going to become a more and more prevalent issue is because we're in such a highly sexualized world where you can't avoid it. And not only is it a highly sexualized one, but it's one in which it's exceedingly deviant. And therefore, it's corrupting, and we need to understand those things. But in Galatians 5, Paul gives us a very simple, helpful list that many of you are very familiar with, but I give this by way of reminder. So if you haven't turned your Bible to this because you say, oh, I know this, turn your Bible to it. Be reminded of it. In verse 19, he says, The deeds of the flesh are obvious or evident because they're not hard to see. And then he begins to give the list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. This is a sliding scale from full-blown immorality of sexual sin to that which is what we've already talked to ourselves. See, we're not in immorality. We're just in impurity or sensuality where we're, we're trying to excite the senses. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these. So that's, this is not exhaustive. And then he warns them. He says, the one who practices these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The one whose lifestyle is evidenced by that, that is an evidence that they're not even yet strangers to this world because they're not saved. So, so he says, this is the fruit. He calls them deeds, but he's going to call the, the things that the Spirit brings into our life fruit. So I'm just going to use the word fruit. When you look at something and you, and you have a, uh, some kind of a fruit tree in your backyard when you buy it and you think it's an apple tree, but when it comes time, it produces pears, you know what kind of tree you got. You know you have a pear tree because it's producing that fruit. And all of us produce the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh at times. And all of you in this room have a certain bent. 
Some of you will move toward the immorality or sensualities, and others of you, you would never do that. In fact, you're quite happy and thankful and maybe even a tad proud that you never have, but you're full of anger. Or you love to just stir up strife. Whatever it might be, it's there. And the wise man or woman, when they start to see the fruit coming out in their life, then they can realize that they are walking, conducting themselves in accordance to what the fleshly desires are, the things you ought to be abstaining from. And so that's actually a gift of God that you start to see the fruit come out in your life, and you're like, dude, and you're so frustrated with just the fruit, but there's something deeper going on there. You need to pull back and say, where have I been capitulating and giving in and, and, and allowing things to creep into my world and realm of thinking and hope? So let me make a key observation. Peter is making this appeal in 1 Peter with the idea that he knows that you can abstain. He's not saying just try harder. Contrary to current teaching that's very common both in and outside the church, that these desires are not unconquerable. They're not uncontrollable for you as a Christian. There's no such thing as an alcoholic Christian. That's a contradiction in terms. That's as much of a contradiction as a a gay Christian or transgender Christian. You can never not, you can never allow yourself to be identified by the deeds of the flesh because they're not yours. You're now in Christ. Instead, he says that you are to be controlled by the Spirit. This is not some weird mystical thing. He goes on to say, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To walk by the Spirit, and we've done, uh, talked about this many times, to walk by the Spirit is simply one who is in submission to what the Spirit has revealed, and that is the Word of God. How do you know? You say, well, I don't know how to walk by the Spirit. I, I, I don't feel like the Spirit's empowered me. Yes, he's already empowered you. He's granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given you the Word of God. This is where it always blows my mind, where you, you as a pastor, you sit with a person, they're trapped in their sin, and you ask them, tell me your spiritual disciplines. How often are you in bringing the Word of God into your life? How often are you then taking what you read and saying, today I'm going to work and practice on this aspect of what I saw and learned? How, how often are you learning to uh, put away ungodly thinking by bringing into your mind godly thinking? When was the last time you read a decent book or listened to a, a decent message? And the, the person is always, without fail, well, I, I, it's hard for me. Or, I, I, yeah, I know I, sh- I need to get better. And it's like, no, you it's not just I need to get better. You need to do this. You need to do it. There's nothing about alcohol, drugs, sex, power, emotions, eating, excessive daydreaming, etc., that are uncontrollable for the Christian. And every time you do that, by the way, parents grasp that is, and then to train and teach that in your household, that this is how my household is. Mom and dad, by the power of the Spirit, we, we 
practice abstaining from things that bring out the fleshly lust. We don't get involved in that. They're controllable. They're to be restrained. So how do you do it? Well, Peter says, by becoming distant. Keep your finger there uh, in First Peter if you're not back there by now. Um, and go to Romans 13. I'll just bring you another parallel passage, but not written by Peter. This time it's written by Paul, but by the same spirit. And I'm going to actually back us up to verse 13 first. Uh, I mean, I could keep going back and then I end up preaching Romans 13. So we'll just do verse 13. Let us, that's a command, by the way. Remember, with the New American Standard, if that's your translation, that let us almost always is a command. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So he's basically doing the Galatians 5 all over again, the deeds of the flesh. But instead, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is that done? What's the opposite of that? By making no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. That's First Peter, isn't it? Abstain from the fleshly lust. How do you do it? He says, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It is putting on all the things that are consistent with who our Lord is and what he has done and how he has revealed it in the word. It's, it's a different way of saying walking by the Spirit. We put on Christ, and we make no provision for the flesh, no room. You and I will never kill the flesh this side of heaven. And if, if you can get that, your fighting will be very different. We keep giving up because we think, I, I keep fighting and it keeps coming back. Well, of course it keeps coming back. It's part of you. It never left you. The only thing you can do with it is by the word of God through obedience and faithful, humble uh, uh, practice is keep it weak. A guy named John, uh, John Owens, right? I totally forgot this famous man's first name. It's John Owens, right? Mortification of the flesh. Chris Lungard is a much more simpler book of that. Chris Lungard, the enemy within, been recommending this for years. It, it is a, a basically him rewriting the mortification of the flesh, which is this thick tome, but it's very serious about how you can put to death and daily the, the flesh. Chris Lungard, just, it's got a lot of A's in it, like G-A-R-A-A-R-D or something. But Chris with a K, the enemy within, he will describe for you the battle that you have that's in you. And you keep thinking the problem is outside you, but it's not, it's you. Always has been, always will be. And how do you fight it? In fact, he warns you, that the flesh is at most danger when it's most quiet. You and I, we tend to think about the flesh as being our problem when it's raging and we're, we're filled with rage or filled with lust or whatever it might be. We're like, oh, the flesh. Actually, it's more dangerous when you think you got it together because it's just running deep and it's going to come up. 
And bit by bit, it's going to work at you. And almost always, it's going to come because you become complacent. You are not in the process or you are not in the practice of abstaining. Remember present tense. You're not consistently, faithfully, day by day, becoming distant to these things. And so what happens is you're doing pretty good and you start to float toward it again. And then it's there again. And then you give up because you can't kill it. But it's never going to be gone until you are resurrected or you die and you're in the presence of the Lord. They're waging war against us. Go back to 1 Peter. They're waging war. These fleshly lusts wage war against us. They're actively hostile toward your soul. Parents, you understand that. You watch your children do something, you realize how foolish it is. And what are you thinking? Talking about older children here. And you're like, can you be more stupid? What? Come on. And the kid is thinking, this is great. And, And it's because they're not wise enough to grasp that it actually is deadly to them. And so they're going to do it. And this is the same thing that you and I as people lie to ourselves, that, that this fleshly lust is not that bad. And I, I'm not, I, I haven't gone into sin. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got no conviction over this. This is okay for me. And so I will continue down this path and not understand that all of this is a war. And it's for your soul. And it's fighting you and fighting you and fighting you. And you keep compromising here or there. We cannot do that as a church. What's his objective? It's to make you utterly useless to the Lord. And we can't let it happen. So in verse 12, he changes to the positive side of the appeal. Keep, and it's literally keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles is just the unbeliever. So how, how is it that we, when is the, what is how, the way that we keep this distance between us and the fleshly lust is we look out at the world and we make ourselves, um, I've lost the verse, excellent. Our lifestyle becomes excellent before them. That's what we do. Our behavior is to be excellent or good. Again, present tense. That's a, it's a worldly, a, a, in, our, in, the, in the world, a day-to-day lifestyle that we are to then say, instead of worrying about that, let's start thinking, how then can we have our behavior before the unbelieving world become excellent? That, that, that word is actually uh, excellent or good is hard to nail down. Um, it has so many shades of meaning in it. It means good or right or proper or fitting or even better, honorable or honest or fine or beautiful or precious. So you can see how it's hard to, and we just call it good or excellent. But what's funny about this is that you know it when you see it. You always do. You've, you've gone into a home, maybe you've gone to visit some old Victorian mansion or something, and you see those little things that just make it right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, have you ever gone to a place, uh, a people, and they're setting the table, and it's not just, you know, some paper plates and here, you know, make do. 
because that's how we normally will eat, you know, just simple basic stuff. But you see that they, they, they adorn the table with things, and you're, you're like, wow, this is nice. What's the difference between an Applebee's steak and something made at a, a high-end restaurant with a real chef? You know, not only is the steak perfect, but it's adorned well, right? This the plating, every, all of that's what he's saying you're to do in your life. You're not just trudging through this life hoping to not get into too much trouble. You're not just slouching your way to heaven. Rather, you're seeking excellence. This is part of what we're doing in our school, is as a community, gathering the children and pressing them toward that which is excellent and virtuous and good. He is very concerned about our behavior. So the first point in understanding our mission as Christians that God has given, God's mission is that we're to be a holy people. And once we get that, then the second part becomes very simple. In verse 12, the last part. So that in the, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a natural thing that happens. Your job is to worry about being abstaining, distant from this the worldly flesh. As you do that, you turn your mind. Do you turn your mind inward or outward? Outward. You begin to adorn your life and your words and your speech and your actions outward toward this world of unbelievers, a world that you're a stranger and alien to. This is not my world. I don't belong here, but I'm going to turn my heart outward and I'm going to seek excellent behavior before them. And as that happens... Evangelism happens. It's at the heart of it. Abstaining from fleshly lusts and having an excellent life before an unbelieving world is the heart and soul of true evangelism. May a church has no reputation because of the way it pays its bills. It's too common to see churches, pastors, individual Christians live one way on Sunday and a whole different way the rest of the week. They allow the various ideas of this world, the age, to define how they speak and live. I've had many times the awkward privilege to meet a person in public and find out that we have a common friend. And I mentioned to the person, oh, he or she goes to my church where I pastor. And the look on their face, oh, I didn't know they went to church. Well, they do. Well, bummer. <laughs> That's awkward. Does the world know you're a believer? Does the world see a man or woman, young or old, living a life excellent? Who would listen to that person? Very few. Notice the goal then of this, according to the Spirit, is so that it speaks of that goal, the aim, so that as you abstain from the fleshly lusts, what happens is you begin to withdraw them from certain things you used to take part in. Once that happens, your friends and your neighbors won't understand it. They won't understand what the big deal is, and so they're going to begin to revile you and accuse you. Here's one of the most simplest things I see happen. You, you begin to say, church, 
the gathering of the body is critical and necessary and commanded. I will be here on a Sunday unless I am providentially, which is what part of our covenant says, unless providentially hindered, meaning God just makes it so you can't, I will be there. And all of a sudden, the birthday party is at 10.30 in the morning on Sunday, and you're having to make that choice. And well, I, I, I want to go there and want to be, no, I'm going to abstain from fleshly lusts. I'm going to gather with the saints, which is part of what I am called as a Christian. That's going to now bring anger. And you'll see it. You'll see your family members and they will shake their head and they'll be texting you and everything else. And you're like, I'm going to church. I'll be there about one. Well, it'll be too late then. Well, then I'll be too late. I'm sorry. Or you say, well, the command to not forsake assembling is a suggestion, and I'll give in to my fleshly lusts, and I'll make my adjustments. Yeah, they're simple decisions. And what happens is then they begin to slander or accuse you. But Peter says, listen, don't worry about that. You will be able to turn the tables on these people. In the very thing that they discredit you, he says you're going to be able to prove them wrong and you're going to even lead them to trust in the gospel. But it's not through fighting and arguing or bitterness. It's by the exact opposite, by refusing to go down to their level and do it their way. You're going to love them, pray for them, bless them, show them kindness. And that's what was happening to these people in this letter Peter is writing. In fact, for the first 200 years of church history, many slanderous details were hurled against the Christian. They were called cannibals, demonic, killers of babies, partaking of the most horrible acts of immorality. They were used by Nero as scapegoats when Rome burned. They were murdered and murdered and murdered. We see the trend today. The world is turning more and more against the Christian in our nation. So what do we do? Do we tweet mean replies and mock, or do we keep our behavior excellent? What do we do, and how do we deal with false accusation? The way you deal with false accusation is make certain it's false. See, it's bad when you are accused by people, and you're, oh, I can't believe they said it, And, and your wife's like, they're right, you know. Oh, right? It's, it's the false accusations. It's, it's like, these are not true. How do you battle against that? You live a life that's so godly, so honorable, so excellent, that you become this living billboard of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You show them that trusting in Jesus is life-changing. Notice that the word he uses here, as they observe Observe, it's a very strong word. It's it's actually close scrutiny. It's not the casual flippant thing. It's it's as they see you day in and day out and they keep watching you, they realize something is different. And they find it actually a, a bit obnoxious or even very obnoxious. Not because you're obnoxious, but because as my sermon a couple weeks ago, it brings light upon that which is evil. You see, when the world superficially looks at us, they find great fault with us. They're judgmental, 
narrow-minded, homophobic. That's all the things we are. But as, and again, present tense here, as the people observe you and are closely scrutinizing you day in and day out, your husband, your neighbor, your boss, they're observing you. Hopefully what they're going to find is you consistently doing the right thing for the right reason, that you're a man or woman of faithfulness. But given time, though they may accuse you of much through your excellent lifestyle, your excellent work ethic, your excellent marriage, your excellent citizenship in heaven, and, and your conduct toward the authorities, what happens is the mind begins to be changed. Something is different and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what's that mean? You may think it's like when God comes again, when the second coming or something like that. It's not. In the Old Testament, it's an Old Testament phrase. phrase, It's very common. It speaks of the times where God visits a people for their good, for deliverance, to rescue them, to save them, just from their enemies. In Luke 168, This is said about Christ, the annunciation of his birth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he he visited us and accomplished redemption. The coming of Christ was a visitation. In Luke chapter 7, God has visited his people. And it's obvious there that he is speaking of redemption. He's again making that reference. In Luke 19, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, and the people will be judged. But in that day of visitation is that day where God visits, where that person, and you may be sitting in this room right now, where it's come to your mind. You realize this is true. These people are not just here weird. They've never done me bad. They have done me good. They've sought my good, and they worship God, and they proclaim Jesus as the way of salvation. This is that moment where perhaps God visits you. And though you sneered and talked about, you're coming to grips with the fact that no, no, something else is going on. Let me be very blunt here. All of us shall be judged. It begins with the church, but it will end with all people living and dead. None of us will escape it. And for some, that day of visitation came and left. And on the day where they are judged, and they say, we didn't know, or this is not fair, it will be presented as you heard. It was presented to you. You saw it. You saw it in the lives of of Mr. Strickland or Caitlin or whoever it might be. That you've seen these lives and you heard the word of hope. You heard the gospel time and time and time again. And you saw every way around it and you shall be judged. For the unbeliever that's in this room, tomorrow is not a promise. No man or woman should ever say, well, I will wait a little longer. It's now, the day, the Bible says, is the day of salvation today. Just simply, even now, commit yourself that Christ is Lord. He is my life. He is my substitute. He is my resurrection. He is my king. But for us as a church, we are called to live so well 
so that when even the people who hate us, when God visits them and they come to faith, that they even turn around and say, no. You know why I came to faith? Because I saw Christ living out in this man, this woman. I watched that household. I was invited to be friends with them. I saw them do things that nobody else did. Why? And they always turned it back to Christ. What is the mission of God? To seek and to save that which is lost, right? And and Jesus said, I was sent into the world, and as I was sent into the world by my Father, so I what? Send you. So the first thing we do, as I, I want you to think about this, is you abstain. Keep yourself distant from these things. And you know what they are, and if you don't, open up your Bible. Abstain from the things that wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior so excellent before the unbelieving world that they hate you for it, and then, by God's grace, begin to love you for it. I want you to have one key thought, and then we'll close. The quality of our transformed life must be visible to the unsaved world. There are no secret disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, the quality of our transformed life must be visible to the unsaved world. There are no secret disciples of Jesus Christ. So you're either bringing glory to the Lord or you're not. You either show to a watching world salvation to be excellent or you're not. So ask yourself right now, is your lifestyle before your unsaved coworker, neighbor, friend, spouse so excellent that becomes a tool of showing them the gospel? They may hate you for it, but are they hating you because you are keeping your life so excellent before them. They may revile you, but have it, is it because you're abstaining from the things which hell rests? My challenge to you is that you would make the right and wise choice today. Let's pray. So, Father, as we enter into this new world, or new year, and Think about what lies we had, the, the plans that we are making. I pray that, first of all, we would be humble of mind and say, as the Lord wills, as the Lord wills, that we would tentatively walk forward, but it would not be out of fear, but with great confidence that you will guide our steps. I pray, Father, that in each of us, a heart of repentance would be there, that as Christians, we'd be thinking about what, what needs to begin to change, I know needs to be changed in my life, the things I need to be distant from that we might exhort one another to love and good deeds, that we might encourage one another, even as we see the day of your coming draw near, that we would endure the times in which we might be reviled, and that we merely make certain that we're reviled for doing what is good. I pray for those who do not know you. Father, give them no rest until they find their rest in Jesus Christ. I ask in your son's name, amen.